this is the thing. Oh, Annie, you're going to know all about this now, that legibility and, and your book cover and how it stands out and everything like that. Yeah, I leave that to other people. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a good thing. People. Other people can get quite nerdy <laughs> about people. this, as you know. <laughs> Did you just say you have people? <laughs> Annie has people. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was amazing. Welcome to The Full Stop, a childless community podcast with Sarah Lawrence, Michael Hughes and me, Berenice Smith. If this is your first time here, welcome and a warm hello to our loyal listeners. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. The Full Stop tells the story of the childless not by choice community. We hope that us as presenters and our guests can help our childless friends to find a voice and a comfortable place in this world. We also seek to inform those around us who do not identify as childless, so that they can learn and support their friends, colleagues and relatives. This episode welcomes back Dr Annie Kirby, who first appeared on our podcast way back in 2019. Annie's writing career, which was just starting when we first met, has really taken off and she's publishing The Hollow Sea in August this year. Here's a review from Rosie Andrews, the Sunday Times best-selling author of The Leviathan. Deftly structured and set against a wild, myth-inspired backdrop, the novel explores grief and violence, freedom and redemption. It's a majestic work of the imagination with writing that shimmers before the reader, underpinned by a howling, fearless story. I loved it and woke up thinking about it. Now Sarah and I were thrilled to receive a proof copy and we're delighted to catch up with Annie in her busy book launching schedule to tell us about her story and the inspiration behind The Hollow Sea, which is an incredible read. We can't wait to share what she's been up to and how she's coming to a bookshop near you very soon. I want to just say that I'm blaming you for, for lack of sleep, mm. Annie, because I've literally been, <laughs> listeners won't know, sort of holding up the proof copy of The Hollow Sea. Sarah, you've read it, I've read it. And literally, I've been like, the last, the last couple of chapters, I've been saving them up to read because I didn't want it to finish. Wow. I absolutely didn't want it to end. I'm like, no, okay, I'll go. I'm at chapter 49. I'm going to have to leave. <laughs> I have to save it up. For like, I didn't want to read it on Monday and Tuesday because um, there'll be other people around the world listening to this going, yeah, 42 degrees temperature. Whoa. You know, that's nothing. But actually, it was so hot. In yeah. I'm not even going to sit and I start reading a chapter and I would just literally go over and sort of into some sort of comatose, heat driven state. So I have saved the book up in order to finish the last chapters when it was comfortable to sit and read it. And oh my goodness. I, I read a book that was set on a mountain when it was really hot and it really, it really cooled me down. It was really helpful. It's really, it's really lovely to hear um, because one of the things that I has, I've been most nervous about is the response from other members of the childless not by choice community. Um, so, um, so I'm, I feel relieved, <laughs> and I'm just really, really happy that that you enjoyed it. I did. Or are I enjoying did. it? <laughs> yes, and I think it's. It, 
I kind of I was writing something yesterday I confess and it was for um the episode of the podcast that's gone out before you which also features um another author um Rob Hutchins and he's written a book about his um extreme adventure adventuring I think that's what I'm gonna call it yeah I've heard about Rob yeah yeah it's amazing his life's actually incredible and I wrote in it that it wasn't a book for adventurers you didn't have to be kind of a white water rafter rapid swimming um nomad you could anyone could read the book because it's got something for everything in fact Sarah's piece in the newsletter pulls that apart so beautifully I think you've written a really good piece in in our newsletter plug for the newsletter there everyone um (laughs) and I think that's true isn't it of the hollow sea there is something in that there's so many themes in it, Annie, that it's for, it's for everybody, isn't it? it? It's quite an incredible book. I, I, I'm trying to think of a question. I don't know where to start because I'm slightly fangirly, I have to say. Uh, you're like, what the fuck? It's amazing. And there is just so much. Bit. And as I was reading it, I think maybe perhaps because we share a creative writing background. Yeah. And that's kind I can't hear how we met, but some in some way we sort of have that in common, don't we? Um, although you are so much better at that and, and went on to, to great things with that. Um, and mine is a very small sort of thing in, in that area. But that working out of all of those themes and where they all interlink, that's some mean feat. How how do you start with that? Um, it's that is a really good question um and a really hard question to answer (laughs) it's a really good question and it's the kind of thing I like to hear from other authors so I'm gonna have a go I think I think what I really wanted to do was to tell a story about childlessness and I wanted it's only one tiny experience of childlessness because there's so many different experiences of childlessness and it's not it's not even my experience it's fiction um, the characters in the book have a different experience than I have had. So I wanted to, but I wanted, I guess, childless people or childless not by choice people to be, to feel seen by the book and to feel that it was in some way an authentic representation of that tiny little part of what somebody's journey was. But I also wanted other people to maybe, um, understand a little bit more about how it might feel mm. to want children and not be able to have them um, and not get a miracle baby at the end of your story and, and those kinds of things I wanted that but I also I also wanted to just write a good story that would appeal to not everybody because it's subjective but to uh, you know um, to anyone who's interested in any number of things so there's kind of like folklore it's things that I like actually I put things that I like in a book so I like storm-lashed islands and I like folklore and I like sea myths and I like boats um and I like kind of remote the idea of remote archipelago in the middle of nowhere so I kind of I took all of that and smushed it up together and then um as a writer, I used to be a pantser, so I would kind of just sit down and write, and I wrote a couple of novels that way that were not very good and didn't really work. So for this book, I plotted it within an inch of its life. I literally, I wrote um, a really detailed outline, and then I decided, and then I wrote scene by scene treatment, um, 
And um, I literally then all I had to do, it was, it was so plotted. All I had to do then was to just go and fill in the gaps with some nice words. Um, and it's, it's, it's weird for me. And a bit, I'm writing another book now, which I'm not doing that way. But for this book, it, it kind of worked to do it that way because there are a lot of threads, I suppose. Um, and not all of them tied up, but I wanted to kind of weave all the all the threads together in a in a in a meaningful way, but with some space for people to interpret the book in their own way as well. So, so yeah, I I just became this mad plotter <laughs> with pages and pages. I use Scrivener actually, so um, Scrivener is a, like a fantastic tool. They're not paying me or anything to say this, but it's just an amazing tool for moving sorry, for moving scenes around and um, for, um, you, you know, you can just drag different chapters around and different scenes around. And um, I, I, it's not really a spoiler to say that one of the threads in the book runs backwards. So I plotted it forwards and backwards and moved it around and, and did lots of stuff like that. So, um, and then my editor, <laughs> um, lovely, Cleo Cornish, my editor at Penguin Michael Joseph, we went through three or four structural edits as well with her guidance um, and lifted it from where it was to about a million miles higher. Um, so um, I, I think if you, you know, if you read the very first draft, you'd see a lot of similarities um, to the, the final published draft, but also lots of changes as well. So um, and I, I kind of enjoy that. As a reader, I enjoy putting the pieces of a book together. And as a, a writer, I found, I'm saying this with the benefit of it's done now. <laughs> I don't have to do it anymore. But as a, a writer, in a perverse kind of way, like running a marathon, I enjoyed the piecing together side of it. I'm curious, Annie, which thread came first then? Because you said it kind of smooshed everything that you loved. Which one came first? Um... I wrote one of the books that I wrote as when I used to be, you know, didn't plan um, was kind of a mystery set on a remote island with folklore. Um, and it, it, so I suppose that came first because I went back to that when I decided I wanted to write another book. So it's a different book. Um, what's really interesting is I picked that book up and read it through before I started writing this one. Um, and it's it's a different story and different characters, but um, what was really interesting, um, I wrote it when I still thought I would be a mum, and at the end, my character is pregnant. <laughs> um, you know, so I, it was really interesting to me to see that I'd kind of followed that trope almost of the character becoming pregnant at the end, um, and it was just such a common thing, whether it's a miracle pregnancy or not um, it's so mm. common for that to happen it's really fascinating for me to read through that book and see all the things that I found frustrating as a child that's not by choice person trying to find stories and literature that represent my experience so, um, so that was really fascinating for me so so I suppose what came first was I wanted to go back to the island um, um, that I'd created um, but I wanted to tell a different story this time and what I wanted to do was tell a story of somebody who wanted children couldn't have them and didn't have them at the end of the book so that's the bit that came first I suppose those two elements came first 
from different places um and then everything else I don't know I don't know where they, the ideas come from I, I, I they just do and and, and it won't fit all together oh wow I, I, I've got to be honest my whole my whole thing is mythology I'm completely into like the stories about the Selkies all the Celtic sort of stories and so when I read the book I was just like flipping out you know it's in Scotland it's you know it's set on like the wilds of Scotland and it's like got all the mythology and I was like tick 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 and then obviously it had the childlessness in it I was curious though you said you I know you sort of said it's not your story but it kind of felt to me and obviously I don't know you personally but it felt like there were aspects of the the main character that were you it did I get that right or is it just completely not you yeah no absolutely I think she's very similar to me in personality um she's quite introspective I'm quite introspective um I so her story is different to mine in some ways similar in others um but certainly I drew on my own kind of personal feelings about childlessness and and that holding on to hope for so long and then suddenly realizing that you know there is no hope and then that kind of that transition from um potential motherhood to not and then that, that kind of that huge space in your future that you have to fill so so definitely I definitely drew on all of that and I think in terms of assume you're, you're referring to Scotty the character of Scotty I think yeah. I think she is quite like me she's quite impulsive she's also a bit of a runner away which might be a feature of my personality she's quite introspective she can be a bit grumpy um she feels things quite deeply um so I think all of those because she is quite a flawed character you know but we're all flawed and um so you know I didn't want her to be perfect um she's not always as nice to her mum as she should be I am always nice to my mum but um <laughs> but also I think that the other character Thordis I think she kind of represents um a side of me as well um or maybe what I would like because I think she's amazing I think Thordis is just an amazing person and so kind of brave and also not perfect but I guess I guess there's there's kind of qualities I would like to have because I'm not quite brave enough I'm a bit timid um that I would you know those sides of me that I would like to have I put those into into Thordis as well so I think um I can maybe I maybe I can see bits of myself in both characters but definitely more like Scotty than anyone else and and I definitely drew on my own emotions as well when I was writing her. There's some conversations in the book isn't there that I think are quite scenes that I think that despite Scotty's journey which I share um, but actually I think you've you've portrayed it to the point that I absolutely believed in all of that. Thank you so much. It was like okay yeah I, I know this bit and and that Trying not to say things without spoiling so hard, isn't it? <laughs> to say, and that bit when she did so, so. But there are several moments where I think there is that. That obviously, I think I think that when we um get my words straight, because I'm doing a really really piss poor job of that right now for a podcast. It's a bit rubbish. <laughs> anyway, what am I thinking? So there are there are moments in the book where I can identify with those feelings. She has the running awayness. 
and it brought up quite a lot of conversations in our house actually when I finished the book and um, my husband's desperate to read this so it's going to be disappearing and he's going to start reading it now and um, I'll be interested in what he thinks because the running away and the grief the process of course of of letting go of something to the point where she goes through this story of, 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 of okay running away to this is not what I'm doing and some of those pertinent conversations that she has with Jasminda, important conversations that you know can take a lot of years obviously for the sake of the book I, I wish it was longer um but actually you know that you have to put them into the book and I think that was an incredibly important part of the book that it's that it's all the conversations and the dialogue and they just happen just to to be in there a little not overdone but they're just there enough for you to remind yourself I think that's kind of what I'm getting to is that we know that she can't have children but it's not the overriding thing because there's so many other things going on it's a mere part of the narrative that you drop in sometimes in how you plotted it out to just say and just just remember this this also affects her too and I think that was just really beautifully done because it then didn't feel overwhelming and it didn't feel like a lecture and it didn't feel triggering to me I want to kind of say that I think to the audience as well but some of it was difficult I have to say there were some bits that came up and I thought oh but you load it with some empathy there's the the conversation on the boat is the one that I identified with the most where she's sitting on the boat with Alison and yeah. they're trying to involve Alison is trying to get them all to chat together because they don't know each other and I don't think it's a spoiler for her to for me to say that they, they sit there on the boat and and she says what about you Tony Alison tried to draw our tap turn skipper into the conversation any kids Tony's face broke into a crumpled smile four he said a seven grand thing I've ever done and there's Scotty sitting there. And I that just broke my, broke my heart when I read it because I thought, crikey, yes, I've had that one so many times. And often we can have it every flipping day of the week if we were, you know, in certain situations. Absolutely. And it happens up. And I think that was just so beautifully executed. And she and obviously Scotty is sitting there because she knows that she's going to get the question next. Yeah. Um, and um what was really fascinating to me, actually, is I read another book recently um, by Emily Pine, Ruth and Penn, and one of the characters in um, that book is um, has been having um, unsuccessful um, IVF for, for many years. It's kind of broken a marriage. And without giving too much away about someone else's book, that conversation, um, someone asking them if they have children, happens in that book too. And I was like, <gasps> when I read it, and it's almost... Um, it's not word for word, but it's quite similar to the scene in my book. And I was like, oh, and it's, I was, this is awful. People are going to think that I've plagiarised. Um, I mean, anyone who knows anything about the book world will know that that's not true because uh, Ruth and Penn has only just come out. But then I, I kind of reflected on that and I realised the reason that Emily Pine and I have written such a similar scene is because we have, this is what gets said to us so often and to so many of us and we have to deal with those conversations um and um you know actually now I think it's a really good thing that there are two books out with a scene in with that conversation because maybe people will now ch check themselves before they ask that question or check themselves before they respond to the answer to that question with something really insensitive um so um 
yeah, it was um, it was really amazing to me to see kind of that mirror of what I'd written in someone else's work, but also um, again that was that was quite personal to me because of having been asked that question and never know, never never knowing how to answer. However you answer it, it's always awkward, isn't it? If someone asks you if you have children, and you say no, there's there's never that either they don't know what to say or they say something insensitive or they walk away or um, and I think, I mean, I don't mind saying that in that case, uh, Scotty says, just says no. And she said that the word no breaks into pieces on her tongue and the other person doesn't even notice, completely oblivious, just starts banging on about how much time you still have, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, interestingly, I had quite a lot more of those kinds of conversations in the first draft of the book. Um, there's lots more insensitivity in draft one than there is in a final draft, just because for storytelling reasons, um, I couldn't have all of them in because it slowed the plot down a bit. So I had to sacrifice some of them. And I, I look, if I look, I think back about them now, sometimes I think, oh, I really wish I could have had um, this conversation about grandchildren or, or this conversation um, about children. But um you do I guess you do have to make sacrifices um for the for the pace and 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 that kind of thing and I'm I hope that I kept the right ones in um and um I think I think in a lot of places um even though Scottish story story is different to mine I think as a community of, of childless not by choice people I think what binds us together in all of our difference is the things that people say to us <laughs> um and you know that the feeling of exclusion Mm. and Mm. and how and it's not just once but again and again and again and again that we have to deal with these situations I was really struck with um Thordis she was kind of you know when you um, think about archetypes of childless women and there's Thordis with all of this mystery around I won't no no plot you know I'm not going to give any plots away but for me, I, I love Scotty. I love that she was flawed and that she was, you know, made mistakes. And I was like, yeah, tick, that's me. But Thordis, I was really drawn to. She had a bit of a mystique about her, a bit of a mystery. And oh, there was kind too. of yeah. that archetype of, mm. I don't know, witch. Yeah. You know? I loved her. I thought she yeah. was incredibly powerful. And actually, although it sounds, maybe it's, maybe, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I, I actually wanted to kind of be a bit like her. I thought she was incredible. So, yeah, she was kick-ass, wasn't she, basically? Yeah, like, Go she on, was girl. so powerful. <laughs> and the way that she did her anger and everything that was going on with her and with, 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 with Marion, but the way that she she presented herself, whether it's the myth behind it, but there's something incredibly legendary about her that I think, would you have felt the same way, Sarah, if you had read the book? I don't know, say, I don't know, say 10 years ago, for example, say you'd read The Hollow Sea 10 years ago and read about Thornis, would you have felt the same now or then as you do now about her was something that was bugging me as well, because I think I probably wouldn't. I would have thought, oh, no, I feel a bit sorry for her. No, I'd I'd like to be somebody else. But actually now I think maybe where I am, I find her incredibly inspirational and as much as I love Scott, I think Scott is so human, so approachable and so very us now there's something legendary but in such a powerful way about Thundis. I don't think I would have been drawn to her I think 10 years ago 
where was I 10 years ago? I was still trying. And yeah. I think she would have been a bit of an elephant in the room for me. Actually. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But now I think she's absolutely rocking it. She's like, she's, I just, <laughs> it's just amazing. You sort of have character, don't you? You can either relate to one or the other or a bit of both. Hmm. I thought she was amazing. She's a legendary character. Mm. One of the things I really wanted to do with the character of Thordis was I wanted to kind of head on approach this idea of childless women being assumed to be witches or child stealers, mm. um, both in her case. Um, and But I also wanted her, and un, un, unfairly, she's unfairly maligned, but what I also wanted to do, um, and again, without giving too many plot details away, she does something spectacularly unselfish to help her worst enemy. Um, and that was really important for me as well, that she did this incredibly unselfish thing at, on more than one occasion, actually. And again, she's quite a flawed character. She's quite prickly. Um, she's really feisty and amazing. And I love all those things about her. But she's also quite flawed. And I think selfish on some levels kind of selfish and vain maybe but also she did this she made these incredible sacrifices for the person who'd taken everything from her really um and that was really important to me as well to to have a childish character do something so unselfish she's the most unselfish acts in in the book are, are done by this person who's who's lost so much and that was um, was really what I wanted to do with that character. Yeah, I think that there's just so many things that she she does, and she puts something first that you think you kind of are thinking, stop, no, don't do that. Obviously, for the plot line, that would not have been a good thing. But to create something, and I know I I went through that as well with um oh god, it was way back in my master's degree, and I went and had a look at the history of childless women in different situations. Um, yeah, witches comes up a lot. Yeah, obviously no doubt that, you know, several <laughs> several hundred years ago, I would have, <laughs> I'd be quite crispy now, um, you know, or dunked, I don't know. It, it's it's quite alarming that that actually is something that's fairly, fairly actually recent history as well. And that judgment does stay, doesn't it? I think in mythology, I think some of the, the dodgy stuff in some of our, our, our storytelling from the past as well. Um, I remember reading something about, about women in medieval times, they didn't have children, they had to go into church and they had to have bricks tied on their feet. And it got quite triggering to read some of them. It really did. Um, yeah, and all the, the witch finding too. You, you created something much stronger from the story, I think, that yeah, from a historical narrative that's very painful to read, isn't it? Um, as well, Michael, do you get that same sort of mythology there? I mean, we we talk about kind of the, the, this whole idea of kind of childless people being judged, but in Australia, do you have that? I mean, a lot of this is caught, caught up, I think, a bit in English folklore. I kind of well, well, actually, British folklore, I think. But does that happen there so much? Um, I think being such a, let's say, a country that is fairly new in the European sense, um, not really. But um, I'm sure some of the different um, cultural groups would have brought their 
belief those beliefs that get you know that that stay um through generations you know like like the witch but um yeah not really and then the aboriginal uh culture is just something totally different absolutely totally different but Annie, I wanted to say to you that um, we we've got a little, you know, our full our full stop podcast uh, chat. So when the girls got hold of your book, it's like, oh my god, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. So I wanted to let you know that yeah, these two girls are total fan girls right now. Oh, so um, now I, and I'm really looking forward to the audio book because I know it's coming out in audio book because I've seen your posts because you were really, you know. Um, concerned about okay who's going to read it so well, because i i travel a lot that's what i like to do so i'm really looking forward to it and this conversation has given me some really big mo uh, hang on fomo that's the right one fear of missing out yep <laughs> nearly got the other one so i'm really looking forward to listening to your book but what i'm really interested in too is so my, my father has written a number of books and what always intrigues me is the is how how you structure your life to write your book. You know the, the mechanics of it. So you know, is it a ritual that you get up at a certain time of day and then spend time doing that, or is it is it only when the mood catches you that you then write something down? So take it, look, take us through a, a typical writing day. Um. First of all, um, Fran Burgoyne, the actor who reads the audiobook, is incredible. So you're in for a real treat. She's amazing. Um, I am a bit of a waster when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to writing. I am not very structured. I'm not one of the people that gets up at 5 a.m. and writes for two hours or writes between nine and one. I'm this is really terrible advice, probably. I am I just write when I feel like it. Is that awful? <laughs> When I when I if I write when I've got something to say, I know that all the advice is always you should write, you know, regardless. But I write when the mood takes me, or to be fair, if I've got a deadline. Um, but I am I'm I'm sorry to say that for me, writing I would rather I want writing to be fun um, and not so much to be a job. I don't know. This is all very unprofessional sounding. Um, so. Um, yeah, honestly, I write when I feel like I want to write and when I've got something to say. Um, and that is very, very, very bad advice. Don't follow my advice, listeners. <laughs> well, I think that's perfect advice because it's human advice because you yeah. have done creative writing studies. You've got your master's in creative writing. I've got a degree in it. And honestly, the advice that you get, isn't it, on the courses, morning the pages. I'm just like, I can barely do morning dressing. <laughs> writing is insane. It is. I, I think it's true. It, it, if, if you're in the right place. And I also would have thought with the hollow sea, you've got to write when you want to write because there is so much emotion in it as well. That must have been quite draining at times for you. Yeah, it was. Actually, it was quite draining. And I think you're right about that. I mean, I'm, I've never been a journal keeper. I've never done morning pages. I don't even have a, like a writer's notebook which is probably I will get kicked out of all of the writing clubs <laughs> for admitting that but what I do do is think a lot about my stories and my characters so 
the time uh, and maybe I'm maybe this is the real answer to Michael's question the time that I spent at my computer I don't write anything by hand either sorry um, <laughs> the time I spend at my computer typing away is a tenth or less of the time that I spend thinking about my books and my characters so I suppose when I say that I'm kind of very lax maybe I'm not because I'm always thinking um, and I and I might think about a story or a character for a couple of years before I put pen to paper well, or fingers to keyboard um, so maybe that's my process um, is the thinking and um, I guess to answer your question Berenice about how it could be draining um, definitely um, in this book in particular in those areas where the character's experiences mirrored my experiences. So where, where things got quite personal, um, they were quite draining and quite difficult to write, but also quite therapeutic to write as well. I, you know, I kind of, for me, the whole process of writing this book has been a really healing. I've got a lot of stuff out and onto the page um which has been so helpful um and to be to be honest you know once I sold the book it all got a bit more structured because I had deadlines for new drafts and things like that so um I kind of enjoyed that side of it as well and I and I'm I think if I've got like edits to do or something like that I'm much more structured in my process and I will sit down and do a couple of hours of editing but it's that initial kind of first draft creativity um yeah I'm 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 afraid I do go against all of the advice um and I wait I wait for inspiration. <laughs> it sounds like method acting it sounds like you're utterly immersed in it. Yeah absolutely that's exactly what it feels like Sarah that's how Oh, that's exactly that's a real way of doing it. Wow. So it, it must cost you a lot then to, you know, to actually be that emotionally connected to the story. Um, yeah, I I suppose it does. Um I suppose it does. And definitely I did have to pace myself a little bit while I was writing it or go off and do other things. Um But interested because I'm writing something else now, which is not quite so personal, but I'm still trying to immerse myself in that way. I think that's just that's how my creativity works for me is to to try and immerse myself in that way. Um, not everything, obviously, is going to be as personal to me mm -hmm. as the Hollow Sea. Um, but, um, yeah, I think I kind of think I found my way now from writing that book has helped me a lot in in knowing who I am as a writer and how I work as a writer which I didn't really know before which is amazing because I've been writing for years and I've done an MA in 2003-2004 you would have thought and I've published short stories you would have thought that I would have known who I was as a writer but I didn't until this book if that makes sense oh wow so it's your real I don't know <laughs> homecoming or discovery or... origin story something, something <laughs> like, <that. Yeah. laughs> like marvel <laughs> i would imagine the process as well of writing for 
a publisher is very different to writing as a self-publisher. Having worked with authors in both, and I've done that quite often and still do over the years, there is a very different way of doing it. Self-publishing is one thing, um, but writing for a publishing house and an imprint is another experience. How Did you find that was different for you as well? And how did that go? Well, um, I wrote, I was on actually on a mentoring scheme with Penguin. Um, so I was being mentored um, by an editor at um, Penguin Michael Joseph, which is the which is the imprint of Penguin who are publishing my book. So, so I don't know if I, I don't know if I can answer that question because I kind of had an editor or a mentor through the whole mm. process. Um, so it wasn't as if I wrote the book on my own and then sold it and then my editor yeah, stepped true. In. Yeah. so I had two I had two mentors um through the process and the, and the second mentor Cleo is is who became my editor once the book was sold um so I suppose I can only compare it to when I wrote before when I was writing other books that are in the bottom drawer and will stay there um, um and I what I will say is I loved having someone to bounce ideas off of um I mean, it doesn't have to, I was lucky that I had a, you know, an editor, but it doesn't have to be, it can be an, any, a writing friend or a writing group or, or beta readers, things like that. But I did find it so useful, especially in terms of the structure of the book, because the structure is quite complicated. Um, I found it quite useful to have someone tell me um, if it made, if it made sense, for example, um, some of the backwards runs in, some of the narrative runs backwards. And so that, those kinds of things are quite useful to have someone say quite early on how what I needed to do to make that work. Um, but um, the book I'm working on now is a bit more of a solitary endeavour, um, not quite ready to share, um, but also quite quite an unusual book in terms of its structure. So um, I'm 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 kind of. I suppose um, relying on myself a little bit more for the current book, um, and and that's kind of fun too. But then there's also I'm building up to the stage where I share it with my agent. Um, it's quite nerve wracking because what if they don't like it? So I suppose what was lovely for me in having a mentor is I had that guidance and I knew that I was going on roughly the right path. Um, I still needed to go through three or four structural edits after I sold it. Um, and that's that's the thing about writing, especially writing novels, is you're expected to go off and do two years of work and not knowing whether it, it, anybody is going to want it, whether your agent will like it, or, or if your agent likes it, whether they'll be able to sell it. Um, so I don't think I, re I, don't think I realised that before. I think... Um, I don't know I don't think I realized how different also it would be working on a second book um because now I'm thinking what what does my editor like what does my agent like um as opposed to I'm just going to write what I want to write um but um to be honest though um I think writing what you want to write is probably the best process not trying to second guess what other people will like and will want um for me anyway 
so that's that's kind of the approach I'm taking but yeah I didn't I didn't have that same experience that most first-time novelists have of being kind of out there on their own and then suddenly selling the book and having an agent and an editor and that's very rare as well it's quite rare yes it's as rare as hen's teeth um I think there's a, a whole myth isn't there of kind of going around and being able to get the agent and the deal actually that's kind of where I think a lot of people turn to self-publishing but that in itself is also fraught with complications as well and an awful lot of expense it's not easy by any stretch um it's not no yeah I think probably 90 percent of the people that I have the authors I have that I self-publish for um tend to come to me because they've got issues with somebody else or something else or it's just gone wrong somewhere and you just need that steer and each time I talk to somebody and we pick up a project and there's always something else I'm learning about oh that bit could also go wrong you know I kind of know what most common pitfalls are but if I was to write a book it would probably be about the common pitfall pitfalls of publishing if I could actually get the words out um that because there's just then again I wouldn't cover them all there's so many of them I think in-house um, yeah. publishing um, or with an agent or with a publisher but also self-publishing too it's a very 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 fraught business and very misunderstood yeah. self-publishing very I think self-publishing has like come on in leaps and bounds it's mm. a really solid business model but it's also a lot of work yeah a lot of work and a lot of expense as you said I'm I'm I guess I'm kind of quite grateful to be as I'm traditionally published that I have you know having an agent um to support me when I'm feeling a bit wobbly and 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 having that relationship with an editor um has been really really invaluable to me so I mean for for anyone who kind of goes it alone for self-publishing I'm completely in awe um because I know how much has been done for me by other people in in the traditional publishing model yeah and, and it, I think it doesn't take much when you outside of that. That's amazing. Yeah, I think with self-publishing as well, it doesn't take much. I think when something goes slightly wrong, um, certainly common things are kind of the, the cover design. Obviously, was some area that I'm quite passionate about. Um, but yeah, the cover design, cover feedback, and it can be absolutely devastating if what someone gets if they share it. I don't know, on Facebook here's the cover what do you think and everyone goes oh no or it's differing opinions that sort of thing it's not the same as a cover reveal cover feedback is very different and you've got to have a really thick skin and that's just one area alone and that might not be something that even the author themselves as creators their authors do like to have a bash at that it's a particular specialism as well book cover design it's um complicated and fraught with myths yeah yeah (laughs) not quite so complicated and old as um the hollow sea but nevertheless there are quite a lot of myths within publishing as well I think one of them is that it's easy so I think absolutely incredible that you have been through the story you've been through and the journey you've been through well what was it like finding out that you were going to be mentored I mean if you can go back that to that time what was that feeling like so I entered um something called uh right now penguin right now uh which is a mentoring scheme for groups who are traditionally underrepresented in publishing um so i have a chronic illness um and i i don't know whether that counts as as being underrepresented so but i i kind of entered and i i said my piece about my chronic illness and i entered the first chapter of my book 
Uh, in fact, I wrote the first chapter of, of the Hollow Sea for specifically for entering it in Penguin right now. Um, and then um, I think they had, you know, I think a couple of thousand entries and they whittled it down to 150 people to go to publishing workshops. And I, I got in and that was amazing. And part of that workshop was to get some face-to-face -face feedback from a Penguin editor. And I got that feedback and it was amazing. Um, and then they said, you've been um, shortlisted. Can we have the rest of your book? <laughs> and I was like, I don't have the rest of a book. Um, so I kind of bashed out 20,000 words in pretty quickly um, and submitted that. And then I got shortlisted and I had um, a phone interview. Um, and and then, it, then I got on the scheme and they picked 10 of us to be on the scheme. And um, I think they I think they picked my book because it wasn't perfect, actually. And and I guess that's because it was mentoring, they could see potential there, but I needed some support and, and some help. Um and um I I couldn't believe it really. It was incredible to be well, I was I couldn't believe it. I was I couldn't believe I got to the workshops, couldn't believe that I got long-listed, couldn't believe I got short-listed, couldn't believe that I got on a scheme. It was all very surreal. Um and um and then I um then I was matched with my um lovely mentor, um originally Jessica, um, and then I changed kind of halfway through the scheme to be working with Cleo. Um and I, you know, I finally finished my book and sent Cleo the final draft. And it, I was coming up towards the end of my time on the scheme. And she phoned me up to say that she wanted to buy the book. So I needed to have an agent for the negotiations. Um which is just ridiculous. It's the kind of thing that happens to other people. Um, so uh, uh, Cleo introduced me to some agents. I signed with my wonderful agent, Sue Armstrong, um, and she went off and supported me in the negotiations. And um, like a, within the space of two weeks from, from Cleo calling me to say she wanted to buy the book, I had signed with an agent and I had to signed with um penguin michael joseph and it, I, it was all a bit of a blur and all quite surreal and the kind of thing that happens to other people not to me um so it was it was amazing really and also a real privilege for me that i uh, i already had worked with cleo and so i knew that i wanted cleo to continue working with me on the book and so i had that was a massive privilege to be able to do as well um, wow. Yeah. wow. I just think it's amazing. <laughs> what comes over actually in all of that, apart from just sitting there going, oh my gosh, I just like gonna you know, happy tears for you, because it's just so lovely to hear that story. Um, is that you talk quite a lot about Cleo, clearly a safe pair of hands for you, and there's a huge amount of trust in that too. And yeah. I think that also for me is reflected in the story, perhaps because I know you, because we've I've known you longer than I've known Sarah and Michael, actually, I think, probably. Um, but also that I felt that the book was safe. I know you are a safe pair of hands, and whether that's perhaps maybe that relationship with Cleo, which clearly is quite important to you as well. Yeah, it's incredibly important to me. And I mean, 
I can't really describe how much she's lifted the book with every edit. And she's always really, she always tells me the nice stuff first, which is great. She tells me what she loved first and then very kindly tells me all of the things that I need to fix. And then, you know, I fix them or ignore them. And <laughs> I don't want to fix that. And then, um, you know, she'll send, she'll send a, a, another really kind note also mentioning the stuff that I that, that I didn't fix the first time, but always really kindly and always really supportive. And she's always right. <laughs> she's never wrong about any of it. Um, it it's natural, so I think, to sometimes feel like a little bit resistant when you're asked to make changes. Um, she's never been wrong about any change. Um, she has known exactly what I should do. And it, and it was similar, actually, when I first started on the scheme, I was working with another editor, editor called Jessica Leake, and I had the most in, incredible conversations with her about the structure and what would it mean to tell this thread backwards and what do you want the readers to feel when they learn something and would they feel differently if they learned it later? Um, so I, I was kind of very blessed to have Jessica at the very, very beginning of the process and then very blessed to have Cleo support me through getting the first draft done and then um, the actual editing um, is has been um, an incredible process I mean editing is painful especially structural edits when you're having to cut chapters in half and move things around because it's quite a complicated structure of a book that was quite painful at times mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if, for example, um, Cleo's advice was to cut some of the chapters in half and make them shorter, that was quite easy to do with Scotty's chapters and almost impossible to do with Thordis's chapters just because of the, the reverse thing and how they were structured. Um, but um, it is, I mean, yeah, I am so grateful to have had Cleo to help me. <laughs> on that journey um and I know you know it wouldn't be the same book if I hadn't had that support Mm. that relationship with editors and authors can sometimes be quite tricksy can't it as well I think so it's good that to hear a positive story I think there's more positive stories to be told out there between that it's an important one but as you say it's kind of the way that the information is delivered and that relationship is so critical as well yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, I had that privilege of already having worked with Cleo when deciding um, whether to accept the offer. Um, but if you haven't had that, I think it's um, really important, both for agents and editors to know what their vision is for your book and whether it matches yours um, and whether the things that they think you need to work on are the same things that you need to work on, because it's really um I think having the wrong agent or the wrong editor um, is worse than having no agent or no editor. Um, so I've been extremely blessed, blessed as well with Sue, my agent as well, completely understands the book. Um, so I was very, very lucky. Um, but abs- I mean, absolutely, I have had, you know, really painful stories from other writers who have, who, who signed in haste, I suppose, because mm-hmm. they had an offer, but without really understanding that, the agent's vision for their book or the editor's vision for their book was maybe not quite the same as theirs. Um, So yeah, I've been very blessed. I think that's true. That's, it's kind of one of those things where I, I, again, going back to my business um, and the book's design that I do, often it can be signed in haste. And I think 
if, if anyone's listening to this and thinking, oh, I've got this book, I want to do it, proceed with care and caution and listen. I, I'd say listen to your gut instinct. If you feel like that person yeah. isn't quite the right person for you, there are others. You don't have to go with the first person you meet, whether that's an editor, whether it's agents, whether it's you're working in self-publishing and it's your first designer that you've met or anything like that. You know, it's it's very much a collaboration I kind of I use that word all the time. I, I must be the word I use probably the most after my dog's name, collaboration. But it, I think it very much is that. I think with any kind of book, it's important to have a to have a, a feeling together about it. And I kind of think it's a bit like sort of dating, I suppose. Are these the are they my person? I think you know just an inkling. Is there potential here? And if I think if anyone goes away with any doubts and thinks they don't understand it, or if they get a contract through and the contract just doesn't make sense and it's not plain um, English or whatever your language is, then and you don't understand it, then get the help you need. And if that feedback and come back and it doesn't work for you, then I think that's when my red flags would be kind of waving quite heavily at that point, breezing away and thinking, mm, okay, it's not quite right and. Um, I'll put some show notes on the show notes. I'll put down a couple of things about some links maybe that I've got um, as well, because that could be quite useful. Yeah. The likes of independent authors is incredible. I'm a partner member and they endorse all of us partner members. It's quite nerve wracking. And um, they go through all of our business and then you get endorsed and you're allowed to work with their self-publishing authors. But again, yeah. um, they do an awful lot of common sense as well. And there'll be other routes as well. I think with them, traditional publishing or finding an agent as well. And we'll put down the details of right now too, um, as well. But Thank yeah, you. it's it's so important to have that collaboration and that support because it can make the journey so much harder. I think it's I worth think. mentioning also because, um, because my route to getting an agent was a little bit different from most people's. Um, it's not that helpful uh, because most people wouldn't be in that very privileged situation I have of being introduced introduced to agents by my editor I just wanted to say that some of the agents that my editor introduced me to rejected me um, even though they knew that my editor wanted to buy the book and even though they liked my book they still rejected me because they knew that they were not the right person to take my book forward Um, and I think that's quite an important thing to know that when you're um, querying your book and subbing it around to agents is that a rejection is not necessarily it's not a rejection of you or your book they're in many cases saying that they are not the right person they're rejecting Mm -hmm. themselves on your behalf for your book because they're not the right person to take it forward yeah agree yeah I've, I've rejected projects at this end too I've got, I, I could do them, I've got the money, I've got the capacity to do it, but they're not the right fit. I know I'm not the right person. You know, I'll put, give them somebody else, but if it's not the right fit for, for, for me and for them, you kind of know that you get a gut instinct about it too. Yeah. I think that's it. Rejection doesn't mean you're rubbish. It just means sometimes, often, it's actually the fit isn't right. Yeah, and absolutely. It. And it's still, it still stings, but it's, yeah. it's a good, yeah. it's a good it's thing. horrible to do. <laughs> So Annie, I'd like to take you back to those mechanics again. The reason why is because I can remember my dad um, smashing away on a manual typewriter in the evening after work in the in the in the dining room, which was right next to the lounge room while we were all trying to watch TV um, in a small British house in in Southminster, Essex, swearing when he made a mistake. And um, I think about. I think about you know his the way that he put his book together. I know another author that I I um, 
that I follow, Daniel Silva, he's an American journalist, and his wife lets out little snippets about his process. He actually writes longhand on the floor of his study to start, you know, to get the creative process down. So I'm interested to know, what, where do you write? Do you have things around to inspire you, or is that just a myth? Is that just, you know, just that sort of romanticised view of writing a book? Or do you have a window that you look at through? Um, take Try and describe it for me. So um, I usually write in the room that I'm in now, um, mm -hmm. which is quite interesting for me uh, because this would have been the room that would have been the children's nursery um, and ended up being the room that I wrote my book about um, never having children um, and having, you know, the nursery always being empty. Um, so that's that's quite interesting for me to to kind of sit in. And um, I live in a terrace house, so just next door is my neighbour's nursery with the baby in. So it's quite interesting writing the book and I could sometimes hear the baby crying through the wall. Um, I know that's not really the question that you're asking, but... Um, no, but it paints paint the picture. But mostly I write in here. I have another desk because um, I work from home as a university researcher. So I have a desk downstairs where I do my university work. It's a completely different space. It has a different feel to it. So definitely this is this is kind of my preferred space for writing fiction. I don't know why. Um, it's just a nice little small room that I can lock myself away in. But also if I'm in the zone, I... I think I can be anywhere because mm -hmm. I sometimes, you know, hire a cheap, um, you know, last minute cottage.com. I might go and hire a cheap chalet somewhere and, and sit and work for myself. So if I'm, if I'm in the zone, it's just me and the screen and what's around me doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter whether I'm on uh, my desktop now, but I could be on my MacBook or, um, doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, so I guess, you know, this this little room means quite a lot to me and it's it's where it's where, it's where I like to be to create. Um, but I don't need it as such. It's just it's more of a preference. Um, so um, so, for example, and I, I mentioned earlier that I sort of um, needed to write 20,000 20, words of my novel pretty quickly. By chance, I was away a place called Circle of, Circle of Mise in, in France and I was teaching writing there and I just stayed on for a few days and I kind of uh, sat in a beautiful room there um, being you know wined and dined and, and waited on and, and just focusing so so I guess I, I guess I guess I suppose I, I suppose I'm saying I can get this hyper focus if I'm really in in the story and really in that place and then it doesn't matter um, but on the more on a more normal day this is the room that I would come to, to, to get started, mm -hmm. to be in that space. I just no, want to say, yeah, I'm always in. fascinated by that sort of things. Sorry, who was, who was speaking? Sorry, it was just something that occurred to me is that I don't think I've got them here, but Agatha Christie's notebooks, there's a book called, um, it's the secret notebooks of Agatha Christie by John Curran, I think. Um, is his name and it's fascinating because it's Agatha Christie's notebooks all about the plot lines for um, Miss Marple, for Poirot, for everything and they are all completely unsequenced 
loads of them, just paperback things, all sorts of different types of books as well, bound little books. And they've got the shopping list in, they've got phone messages, there's random thoughts about something, completely nothing to do with with, um, anything she's writing. And then just in the corner, there might be a little bit about a particular important plot line from the affair at Styles or something like that. There'll be something that's critical. And this guy, John Curran, he was given all of the stuff by the estate. Um, these Agatha Christie's family and said, could you help us sort them out? And I think he's a writer, but he's also kind of a, a kind of a researcher as well. And it took him absolutely months, sat at Greenways, which you think are oh, beautiful. And I had this vision of her sitting at the desk and looking out across the lawn and, and coming up with some kind of amazing kind of twist, you know. And actually it's all just in these piles of these random books and they're an absolute mess. And it was just so gratifying to read that actually, because I thought, yeah, yeah, you know, most people kind of work. There's no order to it whatsoever. Um, but occasionally you just find this gem where she's obviously thought, that's how he does it. <laughs> you know, amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's really incredible as a writer when you get those moments as well, when you suddenly, mm-hmm. when you've been, you've had a, like a plot problem or a plot hole and then suddenly it all falls into place. Uh, those are the best moments. Mm. You had a few of those, yeah? Yeah, I've had a few of those, yeah. <laughs> was there any particular part of the holiday that you really just, you just sort of wanted to sort of give up and just say, I can't do this? Was there any part of that journey? Um, I think the, um, I guess the, the really tricky part for me was the mechanics of Scotty uncovering the past mm-hmm. and that, side of things doesn't come naturally to me um you know if they can all just sit around by the lake <laughs> drinking tea I'm fine with that but the actual of the actual plot sequence of Scotty uncovering the past was that's that was the absolutely hardest bit in terms of not in terms of the emotional sense but in terms of the mechanics of the book that was really difficult for me mm-hmm. um and um, even, you know, right into the, the third or fourth structural edit, um, my lovely Cleo was <laughs> saying, you know, why wouldn't she just do this? Or why wouldn't she just say this? And I'd be like, because then there'd be no book. <laughs> um, so it's, it's almost um, that process of put, forcing, forcing your character it, to go down a certain route um, in a way that's believable and that allows you to tell the story in the order that you want to tell it and, and in a way that's also satisfying for the reader and they're not going well why on earth did they do that it's completely out of character so that for me it was the the the, the most headache most headachey part it wasn't so bad with Thordis because I felt like in Thordis's story there were a lot more gaps um, deliberately that that I left empty spaces on purpose um but I felt like um I felt like Scotty's narrative needed to be a bit more to have fewer of those gaps and to 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 be a bit more what's the word I'm looking for um I don't think I know the word I'm looking for but just to to not I guess just to have the mystery unfold in a satisfying way and I don't 
I read crime thrillers, but I don't write them. But almost, I was almost thinking about, is there going to be a twist? And I think I decided I didn't really want to have a twist. Mm. Um, so how do I, how do I then make that satisfying if I'm not, there's not going to be a big twist at the end and there's still going to be some unanswered questions. So that, that for me was the, the bit that, you know, um, and every time, you know, someone points out a plot hole, it's like, oh. <laughs> modern but, technology yeah. means it makes it quite hard, isn't it? Because you say, yeah. if you sort of went down the modern tech route, there wouldn't be a, a story. But actually, when you paired it with the emotions and everything else going through, the story, the childlessness supports the feelings that mean that she doesn't do the whole modern tech thing and the solutions that we might obviously think that would be the way to, yeah. to do it. The plot twist to me actually was the other male character in it the character of Kenva. Kenva, yeah. I thought I thought that was a bit of a plot twist. Some of the stuff that went on that, oh, didn't know that that was gonna happen. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was my that was what I thought was just that I was just like, oh my gosh, I was surprised. And I thought that was really interesting. And I and yeah, I thought that was really cool. Anyway, everyone's gonna want to go know off and find out about Kenva now. Kenva's quite critical, isn't he, to all of this? Yeah. Yeah. He's an interesting character. Mm. Um, and I think people will maybe I think him I think his involvement might be one of those areas that people pick up on things at different paces so mm. it'll be maybe a slightly different reading experience for everybody depending mm. on when you when you have that moment yeah yeah I think that's that's true without spoiling it for everybody there are certain things you think oh yeah there are several critical moments I think in his encounter as well and also his um uh, his, his, his setup, his life setup as well, is also an interesting thing too. There's quite an interesting narrative, isn't there, I think, with men and women in the book as well, and that power as well, the, the, the power shift that happens all the way through the book between men and women, it, it comes up an awful lot. Was that something that you, you had deliberately set out to do, or is that just the characters themselves kind of sharing their stories with you? I think maybe... A combination of the two things um I mean I think I certainly um I was thinking a lot about the myth and and the way in which myths are often not very kind to women or to the female characters in the myths um and they're not very kind to childless women but they're actually not very kind to mothers or to stepmothers or or, or to whatever you know if you don't conform with um, whatever society thinks you should be as a woman and the, the myths are there to tell you you know that you're not matching up to, to to where you should be and I think there's Scotty mentions that at some point in the book that the myths of the the, the archipelago are not terribly progressive and I, I think they're quite reflective of that it's not a place that's kind especially kind to women um, but I also think um Again, not to give too much plot away, but Scotty goes to visit Kenva at his house and discovers that she had made some misassumptions about him. I do. That's an assumption I've made about people before and then been like, I can't believe that I didn't realise that. So, um, I, you know, I wanted to include that, actually, because... Um, I don't know, I think she probably felt like a bit of an idiot at that point, and I've been in that place of, of assuming something about somebody... And then discovering that they have this whole other life and persona that you, that you didn't know mm. about, that you'd imagine them in a way that they're not. Mm. 
but also that he's allowed to live that life yeah absolutely it's different if if it had been a woman yeah absolutely absolutely. without without giving too many spoilers so he's allowed to live that life and then a couple of chapters later he tells a story about a woman in the blackfish story who's not allowed to live that life whose very existence is transgression Mm. yeah yeah that's it it's it I just I I just kept honestly Annie I'm so I'm, I'm asking you so many questions I, I, just, I just think it's fascinating I absolutely do I think that all the time that you have spent in Scrivener which is drives me nuts but well done for your patience I think just doing that and going through and pulling it apart and putting it together I just think it's incredible because it does work it flows you sit you read it read a bit and then read another bit and all of those parallels come through too on top of everything else I, I, I yeah I, I'm just awestruck by it I just think it's absolutely the one of I just couldn't put it down. I genuinely, I know people say that and it's just, oh, it's an unputdownable book and a must read. Genuinely heartfelt. I could not put it down. It really was so compelling. And yeah, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I'm just blown away by it. And it's just such an honour to have to have known you from when we first spoke to you on the podcast to now. And just this is just like a little kind of like a little kind of little little story with a jeffy on top it's amazing oh, thank you yeah, i mean thank you well so done. much for your lovely words um but it is really lovely because i think i was was i on episode two you were um, <laughs> you were all a bit nervous all those years ago <laughs> before we knew what the word covid was yes one of those well, yeah pre-covid yeah. i'm pretty sure i broke the world record for saying um a lot during that podcast and uh, yeah, that's yeah, Michael. hopefully right. i said um a bit less this Annie, time you, you didn't even come close to the amount of arms that i still do so please don't you worry about that yeah it's is it is kind of it is kind of amazing to think i can't even remember where i was with the book then um maybe part way through um but um yeah it's incredible really to to kind of think back um, and all that's changed in the world as well between mm-hmm. when I first came on and now and yeah it's yeah. Um, it's only three years but it seems like more than three years worth of stuff has happened in the world between then and now definitely it's, it's so good to have you back on I was going to ask you actually um we we often ask Michael often asks this but I'm going to nip in there if that's all right Michael and sort of say I know you sort of say you immerse yourself in books and I don't want to have to put you on the spot and say well what's the next one about because it sounds quite private but does that mean that you are utterly immersed in that one and you're not thinking three years further on are you just in that one yeah I suppose I am just in that one um obviously publication of Hollow Sea is coming up so that's a little bit of a distraction um, but yeah I do like to just immerse myself in the one world I guess and um, I, I, mean, I don't mind talking about it it's actually um, it's, um, it's a historical ghost story feminist time slip body swap mm-hmm. um, story set in uh, late 16th century Italy and early 17th century London and it's about the life of Vittoria Accoramboni who was a noblewoman who was assassinated in 1585 when she was 28 She's uh, she was famously childless and she's been written about quite a lot by other people, sometimes quite well and sometimes not so well. So 
Um, I, I, I guess I still have more to say about childlessness, um, but it's not it's not quite so personal this time. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm little, I have a little bit more distance um, this time, but uh, certainly she's an she's an absolutely fascinating character who's been written about mainly by men. Um, she was the subject of John Webster's Jacobean play, The White Devil, um, in and he kind of um, he he dealt with her in a very complex way, and there have been some other books that have dealt with her as as in a very simplistic way. So. Um, I just I have lots to say and she has lots to say oh um, I love that and uh, so, Annie, Annie Kirby the author that writes wrongs well I don't know I don't know if I'll be writing wrong but I'll certainly be giving her a voice um, that don't that I haven't seen in other representations of her um, so so yeah so I'm very very much immersed in her world at the moment Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait. I was, I was the same as Berenice. I couldn't put that one down. And I couldn't see how it was going to end either. I was like, oh. <laughs> so you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I loved the mythology as well, because I'm really into sort of uh, mythology and folklore. But yeah, I loved it. Really, really well worth a read. Thank so. you so much. I really, um, I really love mythology and folklore as well. And I had a, um, a bit of a theory about um, the way in which not just mythology and folklore, but stories generally. Um, childless characters, you could, if you're a deserving childless character, then you get a supernatural baby <laughs> or, or a baby floats down the river. And so there's there's kind of like various folklore where things like that happen. And if you're undeserving, then you become the witch or the, the child stealer character. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. um, and I think at the beginning of the novel, that was kind of my view was about, I wanted to look at, at childlessness in mythology but by the time I got to the end I was a bit more nuanced because I could see actually mothers treated really badly in mythology um anybody anyone anyone has a child out of wedlock anything like anyone who does not conform to a very very kind of narrow view so so uh, by the time I got to the end of the book it was a bit more nuanced and it wasn't just about childless women in myth but women more generally um but it's kind of fascinating to see how kind of attitudes from really old and ancient stories are kind of still there and the pattern pattern continues in modern storytelling and in, in film and in news mm-hmm. journalism and things like that as well. It's really interesting to see, I guess, there's a symbiotic relationship between storytelling and co- the culture that we live in. Um, and oh, I just it was really interesting to be able to play around with that a bit in the book. Oh, I love that. It's a fine line, isn't it, between a fairy godmother, bibbity-bobbity-boo, and uh, being a witch, isn't it? Yeah, really? very fine line. Never thought I'd get bibbity-bobbity in. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I, I'm just, I think that's amazing. I want you to say one quick thing, and that is Merrin. I think when you're, you're talking about unfairness, Merrin is appallingly badly treated too, isn't she? She is. Um, and al- although she is... Um, I guess from the perspective of Thordis, um, yes. not very well liked with good reason, but she is also, she's also a strong woman and also a victim as well. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, I imagine um, it would have been quite hard for her to ask for help, but she did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so um, yeah, women do have a tough time with it. 
in my mm. book I'm so sorry about that but, um, but, but I, I think I, you do it so sensitively because actually I, I think then I think there's a possible we do miss that I think in terms of uh, as a as a collective as a demographic there's an awful lot of publishing goes on in our community that's factual which is wonderful but I think you have a very rare example of somebody who's written authentically about childlessness and holds a safe space for the reader within that so that the book is also then accessible to anybody who has no knowledge of childlessness. It's more than that, it's so much more than that. There's so many more themes and things like, themes within the book. I think that's important, but also very rare. I can't think of, I can't think of another there was one thing on television once a while ago and that had a character in it and I can't think it had David Tennant in it and somebody else and it was that had a character in it who was trying to conceive and I don't think that they did and that was on I think last year sometime I don't think I've seen anything much else I was trying to write a list of this randomly the other day characters who have been through IVF that it didn't work or and then there is, I, I think I came up with this character and I, and I have got this, I've awfully forgotten yeah. the name I of know, the series. But... I know the TV series that you're referring to, I can't remember what it was. Well, I can't remember either. There's not, there's, there's not much. So, um, so I, I've actually done a bit of a call out on Twitter asking, recommend me your books um, about childlessness where there's no miracle baby at the end and the it's a handful I can tell you yeah. um, that, as I mentioned Ruth and Penn earlier so that's that's a recently published book um Growing Season by Senny Glaster um is a really lovely book about a couple um who are coming to terms with being childless not by choice um and amazingly um written by someone who's actually a mother but she's done her research um and I'd absolutely recommend that book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I've also been told about a book by Leslie Glaster, um, the name of which is escaping me at the moment. I haven't read it, um, but a, an older book. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to go and look up the, the title. But it, they're really very few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, what did I read? Um, the... the, the book by is it Richard Powers the overstory uh so it's oh. a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize winning book about trees yeah. um but one of the subplots is about a couple um coming to terms with childlessness and yeah. it's such a long novel that the subplot is almost as a novel in itself because there's he has space to deal with it I thought that he did a, a really excellent job as well yeah. what I haven't seen is much diversity um so obviously this recent pen out in may and the, the holocy out in august um and both emily pine and i are kind of white um well educated she's a university professor i'm a university researcher i've not seen anything really uh, uh, about uh from writers of color or from the lbtg community that's represented or told those stories of childlessness so um the tiny handful that that has been done is is not very diverse either so I really I just really hope that publishers will start to take more of a risk yeah, with those types yeah. of stories 
um, and not always look for the miracle of pregnancy at the end. And I can I can I can understand why that that's attractive to to readers and to publishers, and it, it finishes the story off nicely and that kind of thing. But I just um, I think there are so many more stories out there to tell. And I think I just I just really, really it's my it's my hope that publishers will become a bit more open to those stories because there must be people out there writing them. I think they're probably sure, not just me. a very contentious yeah. thing at the moment, isn't there? There's lots of stuff going on at the moment in publishing and disruption. Yeah. I think over arguments around representation and around yeah. language in diversity that yeah. rumbles on on Twitter a lot at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's a whole thing boiled up. Um, with Pan Macmillan over the publication of a particular book that has some very, very, um, my opinion, offensive language in it. Yeah, a lot I know the book you're referring to. Yeah. You know the one I mean, yeah. I and it's just, it's 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 caused, I think, some publishers to either, I, I think, perhaps review and think that maybe they need to do more on diversity and others, I think, yeah. will just shy away and go, oh, no, 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 we're not going to get into that one because it's all a bit kind of difficult. And, we and, like I mean, the- and actually, I think that is just so wrong because it puts people at yeah. disadvantage and it builds into that narrative that we've talked about before. Michael, I know you talked about it in relation to Game of Thrones and about the perception of childless men and childless women and how, you know, they are seen in mythology as that. And in fact, actually, I was watching something the other day, randomly, completely retro moment. And I was watching some of the old episodes of The X-Files. And of course, Miracle Child at the end. I remember it being, it was before I'd even thought about IVF. But of course, there is an IVF narrative in that. And of course, ultimately, at the end, the character has a child through some mysterious circumstances that yeah. may or may not be to do with um, birds and bees. We don't know. And I think, ah. Oh, Again, you're doing that. And there's only one book I've ever thrown at the wall that I couldn't read, and I'm not going to name it because the author is based in my, where I live. <laughs> Cambridge is a small city. But again, it's the, the miracle of conception through witchcraft written from in the perspective of somebody who is a parent. And it's not, it's, I just couldn't read it. I've never, ever, ever, apart from A Little Life, which I found too just too traumatic to read and I'm trying to read it in tiny bits um this other book I just couldn't read it I couldn't it was very very rare it annoyed me to the high heavens I couldn't deal with it but um because again it's this oh here's the thing that people want the child at the end and we did it via a cauldron that'll give you a clue maybe perhaps of the title I'm not going to say it's against you but for my personal opinion I found it quite difficult to read because it was poorly researched and I think that's probably largely my problem I think with a lot of these stories I'm sure and listeners would agree is actually sometimes they're quite badly researched it's um you know IVF is easy or yeah. this is easy or that's easy and actually all the routes that we end up in this space are incredibly complex and incredibly painful yeah. and that gets overlooked in the expense of reader satisfaction and and then you've got a whole demographic that isn't represented in any way. And that's really sad. It is really sad. Um, one of the reasons I was so impressed with uh, Growing Season by Sunny Glaister is because Sunny is a mum, but mm. she's obviously yeah. talked to people and done her research. And, um, you know, if I hadn't known she was a mother when I read the book, I would have assumed that she'd been through that experience herself. So I was really impressed with that. I think there's a, a problem with publishing generally is in a, how they decide what books to buy and how much they decide that they will pay for the book that they're buying. It's largely mm-hmm. based on what 
previous books have have been successful Mm -hmm. so it's like a self-perpetuating cycle and that's one of the reasons that there's been historically such a lack of diversity in publishing um and I think that is changing maybe not quickly enough I think it is changing um I don't I don't know the answer I mean the, the the book you referred to um earlier where um you know had the, the really offensive terms and I think it wasn't just the offensiveness of the terms in the book but the way people were treated when they pointed it out absolutely um, was, yeah yeah I think that was the worst part yeah, yeah. you're right it's you can almost it. mm. you know you can almost say well that writer made a mistake that she could go away and learn from mm. but that was not the position that was taken it was the position was to, to go on not even to go on to the, the defensive but to go on to the attack yeah um and mm. and um publishing has to be better than that yeah um, and yeah. one way it, it, it can be better is for publishers to take chances on stories that haven't been told before but it's very difficult for them to do that because the way that they acquire books they literally look at books that they've previously published and how how they've sold yeah. and how they've done so um I guess a new model is needed but I don't I don't no, I don't know enough about publishing and how it, how it works to know what the answer is. I don't. There's no magical solution, sadly. There isn't. One of my great dreams is to actually have a publishing list of of childless, not by choice authors. I would love to do that. I'm getting a little bit too long in the teeth to do it now, and I also know t- I know too much about publishing to think that I'd like to do it unless I had a lottery win behind me. It's too risky. It is such a risky thing, and that's the sad thing about it. Is actually I think it would be a, a brilliant thing to do, but I unfortunately I've all, I've got too many baffle scars from publishing to think yeah. that I'd like to do that. But maybe somewhere out there, there's a publisher who is thinking of that and and if by some chance they happen on this particular episode of the podcast then then please 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 tell us about it because it is absolutely needed I think for it it has to change as you're right and the the weird wonderful thing and the irony of of this awful um debate and and this inequality that's happening within this this particular book and and the you know the the offensiveness of the of the attack is that probably most of those publishing houses are going through huge amounts of um inclusivity and diversity training so the staff probably do know um more than probably some of the other people that are looking at the books and I think that's really 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 sad actually as well um, because I think if any business operated on that particular kind of um, level, then I, I, I couldn't possibly be in business right now. And certainly nobody would want to, to work for them. Um, yeah. Anyway, enough, enough said about that. We will move on gracefully. Um, Annie, when is your book being published and where can it's, people buy it? It's out on the 18th of August. Um, and um, you can um, buy it from wherever you like to buy your books, actually. Um all good bookshops they're um, everywhere <laughs> yeah. if it's if it's not in stock um the bookshop can order it for you um but yeah it should, it should be it should be everywhere um available for pre-order um or uh, from the 18th of august in in bookshops or online mm. 
Fantastic. I've been speaking to the chap at Burt's Books, who's based in Swindon. It's a new bookshop that's just opened. I love Burt's um, Books. Go, go support Burt's Books. He's, he's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant Twitter feed as well. And yeah. um, I recommended, I said, you know, what you've been reading? I was like, a proof copy of The Hollow Sea by Annie Kirby. And oh. uh, he tweeted or direct messaged me to say, oh, I'm going to be ordering it for, for, for customers. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> you can go and order it from Burt's Books as well. Thank you for listening. We hope you found Annie's story as inspiring as we did. If you'd like to find out more about The Hollow Sea, go to penguin.co.uk and search for the book title. Remember to support indie bookshops when you place an order. Annie's website is anniekirby.com. If you'd like to find out more about The Full Stop, the CIC, or you have a topic we haven't covered, or you'd like to be a guest, then please reach out to us. We'd like to be as inclusive and diverse as possible. You can find us on Linktree forward slash full stop CIC. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn and we have a channel on YouTube. All of these are listed on our Linktree which is also featured in all of our bios on social media and on the website which is the fullstoppod.com. Here you can sign up for our listeners list where you can keep up to date with what's going on in our world. And you can also donate to our work too via our Kofi fundraising page. And as always, it's important for us to tell you, you're not alone. I've loved it. Thank you, know, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for reading the book and liking it. Oh, I adored it. It was fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It, really does, it really does mean a lot to me, to, for people from within our community to, to read the book and like it. Um, and I know not everybody will because it's subjective but um, yeah it was definitely um, an area of nervousness for me I can imagine yeah.